John chapter 10. If you're reading along with me from a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1076, if that's helpful, page 1076. So, John chapter 10, and we're going to begin to read at verse 1. This is God's Word, and therefore we know we can trust it completely. Verse 1, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hard hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. Tonight we're looking at limited atonement, and it pushes below the, the surface, as it were, to ask what is happening when Jesus dies on the cross? It's often seen as one of the more controversial of the Reformed doctrines, and so we're going to need to step through this in a little bit of detail tonight. I'm sure there are going to be all sorts of questions that uh, are going to rise in your heads. And uh, I'm not saying for a moment that we will try to answer them well, even in what we're doing here, or indeed perhaps uh, as we chat about them afterwards, but we'll certainly have a, a, a go. But I hope that towards the end of what we're doing, we'll be able to see why uh, this matters and why it should really encourage our hearts. Let, let me uh, uh, begin with an illustration that might help us. Two people were given the job of building a bridge to people across a great chasm uh, on an island. And, and one person built an amazingly wide uh, bridge. 
so wide that countless numbers could have fitted on it side by side. But there was a problem, and that was that the bridge didn't go all the way to the island. And the bridge builder stood at the end of the bridge, not a great distance between him and the islanders, but he called for them to come and to jump onto the bridge. He says it's just a small jump, but actually it was further than he was making out. And, and no one from the island could quite make it. And so that, cross, that bridge became obsolete and was never used. Another person built a narrower bridge. It didn't look so impressive in some ways. It maybe didn't look as inviting, but it did go right to the island, and it fully bridged the gap, and the result was that that bridge was effective and was used. And, and that little illustration, which has all sorts of holes, I know, gets us to one of the issues at the question of limited atonement. So, when, when Jesus died on the cross, was he making an incredibly wide bridge and then really sort of saying, now salvation is possible for anyone who will, who will jump? Or was he particularly intent on saving a certain number of people, going all the way to where they were? And limited atonement says that actually he was doing the second. He was really and actually paying for the sins of his people. As I said, this is often thought of as a, as a controversial uh, teaching, and so you will get people, for example, who will say, well, I agree with uh, reform teaching generally, but I'm not so sure about limited atonement, and sometimes they'll call themselves four-point Calvinism, uh, four-point Calvinists, and this is the point that they would tend to drop. Uh, they'll feel uneasy about it in some way or another. And of course, we, we want folk to wrestle with teaching and to, to begin to, to ask all of those sorts of questions. But ultimately, one of the things that we've got to be content to know is that the question is not how comfortable we uh, feel about anything that we believe. It is, is that what the Bible says? What does the Bible teach? And, and the reason that, that many people believe this is because they are convinced that that is what the Bible teaches, and we're going to try and show that tonight. Now, let's recap just a little about where we are. We're looking at these, as I say, these five points of Calvinism at the moment. They emerged from a Dutch church gathering called the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619 in response to a theological dispute, but they became seen as a sort of a summary of some key elements of Reformed theology, the sort of Reformed convictions that underpin uh, some of these core uh, teachings of Reformed churches like ours and Reformed Baptist churches and Anglican churches. One of the things that we might not always realize is that though uh, to walk into an Anglican church and, and a Presbyterian service, it might feel quite different in terms of style, that the underpinning theological convictions are very, very similar. The, the constitutional documents, the 39 articles, for example, very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
Now, now these five points of, of uh, Calvinism are, are summed up by this little acrostic uh, tulip. You see that T-U-L-I-P. Uh, T, we've, we're, we've got to L so far today, so here's, here's where we are. T is total depravity. It, it addresses how broken we are as people. What it says is that sin has affected every part of us so radically that we're unable to move towards God. Now, as I said, lots of people see limited atonement as the controversial point, but actually I want to suggest to you that, that actually that is the more controversial teaching because what it is saying is that we really need God to step in and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And in many ways, the other points tend to flow quite sort of logically from that. And what that is saying, you see, is if there is a bridge that goes uh, most of the way and it's up for us to, it's up to us to jump that last little bet to sort of cooperate and do our bet, then we will never be saved because we, we, we simply cannot jump, as it were. And that seems to me to be the most controversial point of, of what these uh, doctrines point to and what I think the Bible teaches. So, so T is total depravity. Uh, U is unconditional election. John looked at that last week. It explores how people ultimately become Christians. Ultimately, God chooses. God elects. We, we see that word in Scripture. He doesn't have to save any, but He saves some. And His choosing is not based on anything in us. It is not conditional in anything in us. It is unconditional. And that is incredibly humbling for us as people because it is saying to us, I can't do anything to save myself if I'm a Christian. It is because of the grace and mercy of God, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then L, limited atonement. Having chosen a people, God sends His Son to die for those people, not just to make salvation possible in some general sense, but to actually rescue and atone for them. So we need to ask, is this what uh, the Bible says? And what we're going to do is look at a few verses, six verses, that uh, indicate a couple of things, and you can look for these two things. They indicate, first of all, I think, that, that Jesus died for His people, not just in a general sense for everybody, but for His people, and then they indicate also in many cases that what Jesus did for his people on the cross was to actually save and not just make salvation possible. Now, we're going to look at, at, at these uh, verses, and uh, you'll see that, that in some ways they're very familiar verses, but you might not notice uh, that they address those very questions that we've just so, first of all, Isaiah 53, we're going to put them all on the screen. I think they're all, um, oh, they're all unreadable, so there you are. Uh, but, but hopefully, uh, you're able to bring out your binoculars and uh, pick those up. They're, they're um, uh, ESV, I think, in, in every case. So, so uh, Isaiah 53, uh, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is one of the servant songs, looking forward to Jesus, of course. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, God says. Not stricken for everyone in a general strength, but as, but as God says, for my people. Matthew one twenty one, famous 
reading from Christmas, the angel's announcement to Joseph, Matthew 1.21, she, that's Mary, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, he will save his people from their sins, and not just make their salvation possible, but, but actually save. Matthew 20, 28, <clears throat> even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So, the ransom that is paid is not a, a ransom for everyone potentially, but it seems a real payment for many, in other words, for some. And again, not just the offer of a ransom, but a ransom. John 10, the passage that we read a, a little moment or two ago, John 10, verse 11, Jesus speaking, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, if you know this passage, you'll, you'll know that the sheep here, as we've seen as we've read it, the sheep are God's people. They are protected, they are kept, they are called, they, they, they know His voice. Uh, later, He says to the hostile uh, Jews who are giving Him grief at that point, they say that He says to them that they are not among His sheep. So, the sheep are His believing people, and Jesus says that His laying down of His life is for the sheep, not for those who are against him at that point, but for the sheep. Then Acts 20, verse 28, this is uh, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus. He says, uh, Acts 20, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Very interesting verse, that, isn't it? Because it speaks about the blood of God. Usually we think of the blood of Christ, but here it's the blood of God. It's a very clear reference to Jesus' divinity. But who did this blood buy? Well, it bought the church of God. And the implication is that those who are not the church are not bought, but those are. They are bought with the blood of God in Christ. And then again, Ephesians 5 and verse 25, Paul speaking about marriage, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. So, the focus of Christ's giving of Himself is the church. So, that, so there are six passages where, where I think two things are, are, are clear. On the one hand, when Jesus dies, His death does something. It, it, it really does something for people. It, it, it achieves something. It actually pays for their sins. It's not just a, a potential. And the people for whom that happens are the church, God's people, the sheep, those who believe. So, John asked a, a little teaser question last Sunday night. He said, are there any in hell for whom Jesus died? And the answer, according to these verses, I think you'll see, is no, because the death of Jesus was specifically for His people. 
And we would understand then the difficulty if it were the case that Jesus had died for some, had paid for the sins of some who finally reject Him and end up lost because if they are lost and are paying for their sins in that case, why are they being punished for their sins if Jesus has already paid for them? Now, that, that sort of argument that, that sins cannot be paid for twice has often been used to encourage believers' anxious hearts. It's in some of our our hymns, for example. So effectively, it's saying, Jesus died for your sins. He's paid for them fully. So it is unjust for God to demand payment for them again. So you, you might know an old Augustus Montague. They don't name kids like that anymore, do they? Augustus Montague, top lady hymn, maybe just as well. Um, it's, it's called, From Whence This Fear and Unbelief. Let, 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 uh, let's see, can we read this? Uh, From Whence This Fear and Unbelief? Oh, yeah, maybe a little bit better. From Whence This Fear and Unbelief? Since God… So, here, here's the hymn that's really pastorally addressing the anxious heart of the believer. Could I get to the gates of heaven? And God said, but you have sinned so massively. Uh, the, what, what, what Jesus did, well, that was one thing, but but you've sinned so massively. So here's how this hymn addresses that. From whence this fear and unbelief, since God my Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? Can He, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? And then it goes on. If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured, the whole of wrath divine. Payment God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. So, you, you see the argument. It, it is unjust for God to demand that sin be paid for twice. And, and what that means, therefore, is that either Jesus pays for sin on the cross, and those people are fully and finally forgiven, or the unrepentant sinner bears their own sin in hell. There is no other option. So, so you see that the sweep, therefore, of what we've sort of been seeing so far, total depravity, sin has so affected us in every part that we're unable to move God towards God, unconditional election, God has chosen a people for Himself whom He determines to save, limited atonement, Christ achieves a full salvation for those people. Now, lots of folk have said this word, limited atonement, it works really well to make your tulip up. Um, but it's, it's not a great word. It sort of implies that it's not, that Jesus' work is not as great as it could be. It somehow devalues what people have done. And so, you'll find that some people prefer to use the word definite atonement, that Jesus' atonement really definitely does something for a definite number of people, or particular redemption. It's focused on a particular number of people. And, and those are, with, probably without question, those are better terms which refer to the same things but really mess up your tulips. Now, before we go any further, we need to deal with something that perhaps some of us are, are, are thinking, especially if we know our Bibles, and it's, it's, but what about those 
other verses. What about those other verses? Because there are a number of verses that, that say that Jesus died for the whole world in different ways. Let, let me look at some of those with you uh, briefly. So, for example, 1 John 2 and 2. 1 John 2 and 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That seems to drive a coach and horses through what we've been saying, doesn't it? Now, there are a number of texts like that that, that seem to imply that Jesus paid for the sins of, of, of those who ultimately never believe in Him. But, but what we need to realize is that, that John uses the word world in a whole number of different ways. Sometimes he, he means everybody, the whole unbelieving world in opposition to God. But sometimes he is contrasting Jewish exclusivity, so, so Jewish thinking that was basically saying salvation is just for us, it's just for the Jews. And John was saying, no, 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 it's for the, it's for the world, not just the Jews. So he's not thinking necessarily about everybody, every individual in the world, but, it, but it's, it's saying it's, it's so much broader than you think. So it's a little bit like uh, the way it's used in John 12 and 19, where the Pharisees claim that the whole world has gone after Jesus. And the stress there is on the, is on the numbers and on the range, but it doesn't mean everybody, because ultimately they were not going after him. So, so there, are, there are places where we, we've got to look at the context and say, well, does this actually mean every single individual? Hebrews 2 and 13, the same sort of idea. Hebrews 2, and, sorry, Hebrews 2 and 9. But, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for everyone. At first glance, this seems to be saying that Jesus' death is for every individual in the world. But, but again, we need to think, what is the, the Bible referring to here whenever it refers to everyone? So if you are, are teachers, for example, and you might have found yourself in the situation where you agree to meet a class in the assembly hall, and there's a general hubbub, and then you stand up and you, what do you say? You, 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 you immediately say, well, is everybody here? It never really struck me that that was a particularly sensible thing to, to say because the people who are not there can't answer that question. But, but uh, th th that's what we say, and we, we use that term often, don't we? Is everyone here? And what do we refer to whenever we're using everyone? We're not saying everyone in the world. We're not even saying everyone in the school. It's everyone in the group to whom you are referring. So we often use everyone in that sort of way. And it seems that the writer to the Hebrews is doing that too because he goes on in verse 10 to say, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Taste death for everyone, many sons to glory. These are the everyone, it seems, defined in verse 10 that are there in verse 9. So, there are lots of those issues to try and work through, and, and, and some people will disagree in this because they, they, they start at different points, and, and, and therefore they come uh, to different conclusions. But you've got to try and make sense of this in one way or the other. 
Does it, does it mean all people or all types of people or all people in this group? One last one uh, that we might want to look at, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, it's helpful for us to see this, uh, <clears throat> 2, 3, and 4, actually, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good, uh, Paul says, this is good, and it pleases and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all people to be saved. Now, this is one to get us thinking and, and maybe to get us uh, talking afterwards. This could mean, couldn't it, all types of people, just as we've said. And there's a certain logic to that because uh, Paul has just been talking about praying for those in authority, and so all types of people seem to be sort of in his, his uh, vision there. But others have, have thought about it this way. Uh, John Murray, particularly helpful in this. It, it seems that it seems that God desires some things that do not come to pass. Now, immediately you think, goodness, how can that work? Well, well, theologians talk about the revealed will of God. The commandments are, for example, an expression of that. They're, they're what God wants, what God declares that He wants. And yet, we also talk about God's sovereign will. Or, or sometimes his secret will, where he ultimately directs all that comes to pass. So his revealed desire is that, that, that all people would be saved. And yet, mysteriously, we know that this is not what happens, and he is in control of what happens. And in a deeper sense, this is also mysteriously his sovereign will. I think we'll see very quickly, don't we, that we begin to see our, our smallness and God's greatness and the mystery of all of this. Our, our limits are very real. God is God. Now, why does all of this make a difference? So what? That's the question, isn't it? Let, let me try to ground this for us in a couple of ways. Some of us here might not yet be Christians, some of us listening perhaps. Let me, let me try to, to ground this in your situation. Let me tell you what you're, you're not to do, and it would be very possible for your, your head to go here, your heart to even to go here, as we've thought about this. What you're not to do is to say, well, do you know what? Maybe Jesus didn't die for me. There's no point in me even trying to, to become a Christian. That would be a mistake to think like that, and, and I would want to suggest also an excuse, actually, to think like that. Now, now, what the Bible is saying is that your need is, is very, very great. Your sins are, are a burden that, that, that you cannot hope to, to carry on your own, and, and perhaps you begin to know that. But Jesus died for sins on the cross, and He invites you to, to believe in Him and be saved. In fact, He he really commands you to. And when he said, come on to me, all you who are weary and burdened, he, he, he meant you. And if you do that wonderfully, you will find that as you believe in him, as so many of us here have, you will find that as you believe in him, your very belief 
was part of what he won for you on the cross. Do you know he, he had to do that much for me? He, but you really need him, you see. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you've believed in him, then, then part of the way that this teaching is, is to function in your life is to, is to just give you a great sense of assurance, a, a, a tremendous sense of the, the overwhelming love of God that has been shared abroad for you. Because you, you can sit here tonight, you can hear this, and you can know that Jesus built that bridge for you. He, he, he really died for your sins. He really carried them. So, so, we, so we might say it this way, that Jesus did not ascend to the cross saying, I'll do this, and, and who knows who might believe. But he went to the cross with his very people in his mind, with your name, Christian, on his lips. And he fully there, satisfied for all your sins, past, present, and future. They will not, they cannot fall on you. You will not be asked to pay for them because he has paid for them fully. And so when he said it is finished, he meant it. That top lady hymn has a last verse. This is where we're going to end. This is what it says. Turn then my soul unto rest. Don't we need rest in our world, in our hearts? Turn then my soul unto thy rest. The merits of thy great high priest speak peace and liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. This is what we need above all else, to know that he stood in our place, and so all fear is gone. Well, let's take a moment to pray, to ask God for his help and to thank him for his love.